And in some sense, I feel like I always will be behind the starting line, whatever it is, whether that be college, law school, or the legal profession. But recognizing that reality forces me to work harder, whatever that is needed or whatever need to take. So I think that's what this difference really is, because getting in is one thing, doing well is another thing. Welcome to The Wild Show with your hosts, Will Chang, Lee Chang, and Andrew Su. Hi, this is Will Chang, and as always, I have my co-host, Andrew Su, with me. Today, we are delighted to welcome our friend, Tuan Uwang, to the podcast. Tuan's formative years were spent in South Central LA, where he was the only Asian kid in a predominantly Hispanic, low-income neighborhood. He was raised single-handedly by his mother, a refugee from Vietnam. Tuan earned his bachelor's from UCLA, followed by a law degree at UC San Francisco. From there, he spent a decade as a litigation attorney doing corporate law at Reed Smith, top global law firm. Today, Tuan is a litigation attorney at Sessions, Israel, and Shardell, and has litigated hundreds of cases in state and federal courts. Tuan also undertakes pro bono work, notably suing the U.S. government on behalf of Vietnamese refugees and representing a Cambodian genocide survivor. Welcome, Tuan. Thank you, and Andrew, for having me on the show. So I actually am friends with a lot of Asian American men, but I've never actually met some point like you where you grew up in South Central LA. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah, for better or worse, right, Will? So I definitely have a bit of an atypical ring up because I think part of it is my mom just didn't know any better. Being a refugee from Vietnam, she was pretty much uneducated. Hop on a boat, got rescued by a Dutch shipping company, brought over to the Philippines. From there, we were pretty much you know, sponsored over to the U.S. And they landed in L.A. And my mom had no idea the boundaries, like the makeup of L.A. She had no idea she was in a community that was predominantly made up of Latinos and African-Americans. So guess what? I went to a high school where it was pretty much 74% Latino, 25% American, and 1% other, which was me, right? I was the only Asian person, not just guy, in the school. So that made an interesting experience, to say the least. So can you tell me what that was like, being kind of the only Asian kid in your school? Did you understand your Vietnamese? Like, what was that like for you? Hey, this can be real. It was definitely tough because my mom, she was ignorant. She didn't know any better. What she saw, racial makeup, but particularly African-Americans, what she saw on TV, these stereotype prejudices and all that. So she was scared. And so was I. And that was placed upon me. I thought I was going to get robbed. I thought I was going to get beat up. And all the craziness that you think about, unfortunately, the negative stereotypes that people have about those communities. And you know what? Spending four years in that high school, and I actually pretty much grew up my entire life around Latinos, African-Americans. I always like joke about it because when I went to UCLA, for example, which is predominantly Asian, American and white, I never felt like I was accepted by the Asian community. But at the same time, I wasn't brown enough for the brown people. I wasn't black enough for the black people. And I wasn't like yellow enough for the yellow. So you kind of get caught in this fault line and not really know where kind of like maneuver. And that was pretty much kind of tied back to where I was growing up when I was in high school because I kind of get thrown into the mix of this and like just trying to figure that out. But at the end of the day, it really wasn't about the color of your skin. The community was just, it was a tough community because socioeconomically, it was a dying situation for everybody then. It didn't matter what your skin was, but we don't have enough books. You don't have good teachers. You don't have the resources to help the community. 
it doesn't matter what your skin is. It's going to be a challenge for everyone. Now, being an Asian American actually helped in that situation because I walked into a classroom and it just assumed that I was smart because, again, that's the stereotype that like actually worked in my favor in that situation, right? So I graduated like high school, I think 4.6 GPA, Valley Victoria, the whole thing, right? But when I went to UCLA, I got my ass handed to me because I wasn't ready to compete against people who really had a proper education in high school because I came from inner city. I thought, for example, putting big words in like a essay meant that like, I was saying something intelligent. My favorite story to tell when I was at my first year at UCLA, I had this English professor. One of my first papers I wrote, I remember it was bleeding with red ink. Okay. At some point, she just stopped and put a line and said, come see me. Came talk to her and I told her my story. She's like, oh, I get it. She got that. Clearly, I did not come from a community that actually taught her students. So she sat with me for every day for a whole summer, teaching me basically what I should have learned in high school. So. It had its challenges. You could fake it till you make it, but it still was a process. Before we get into kind of like how you had to adapt to UCLA and being around people that are kind of have more academic backgrounds, how were you able to adapt to your childhood environment growing up in high school? Because I would think that most people in your environment probably were not academic, right? And so how do you basically navigate your way to UCLA without many people knowing how to get into college? That's an interesting question. And that reminds me of our interactions because I think a lot of times when we interact, you made a comment one time. You're like, hey, I'm trying to get to know you. But every time you ask a serious question, I make a joke and not like get into anything that's deep. And that's kind of how I've been able to navigate that particular segment of my life, right? I was the class of the funny kid, right? I did that in part was kind of protection, so to speak, for me. And not in diving into like, I think the serious issues that were like existing in that. So to answer more directly, I was, the kid that everyone liked. So the brown games and the black games were like, oh, we're friends with both of them, right? So they're like, dude, we only have one Asian guy. There was kind of like a informal understanding by both games that like you lead one alone, right? Kind of thing. But in some sense, that was a blessing because I didn't have the same pressures that my Latino friends and my black friends did, who, again, amazingly smart people, right? But the problem of that situation is, let's say you were brown or black, you wanted to study, you didn't want to join a game, it would have forced you anyway. The idea is, okay, if you were a brown dude who didn't want to join a game, they would get the black age and basically jump you. So you had no choice but to join a game to like survive. So I felt for these guys because I was in their shoes. We were in the same class. And when you show up with like a black eye, you know, you know all beat up, you kind of like, what happened to you? Right? So it was a tough situation for them. But luckily for me, I didn't have an Asian game. I was like by myself. In that sense, it actually helped me survive, I really think, that community. How did you develop or being funny? Or was that already like part of your personality? I think part of it is also being an only child, right? I kind of pretty much entertain myself all the time. And not having any siblings, I kind of like always compensate by being funny or being outgoing to get that attention, to get people to like gravitate towards me and being loud helps. So I think that it's so funny. It's kind of now thinking about it. It all kind of just got together to help me kind of go through what I have to go through. Those skills were like unexpectedly developed by being an only child, being thrown into kind of like that niche. What was your mother like? I think very typical Asian mom. Never, emotion was not 
her strong suit, not her fault. I mean, her mom didn't show her any affection. I'm sure her mom didn't show her any affection, right? So in her eyes, I had it easy, right? Like you were talking about, like, all you do is focus in school. I'm like, what do you mean not getting straight A? She showed love the way she knew how, which was through hard work, meet the financial needs of the family. But was she a mom in our traditional academic sense? Not really. She was an amazing mother in terms of she provided. And a story I tell all the time was, I remember when I was in junior high and I was valedictory junior high class. And my mom had, at a time, opened her own store, very successful, but she opened every day. My mom worked 365 days a year for like over 30 years because it's kind of like that immigrant mentality. If I don't work, I must starve despite being well. Anyway, I was valedictory. She didn't want to go. It's just like, again, of course you're like, number one, you don't do anything. My family forced her to go. I remember she came, saw me in the stage, holding my big trophy, accepted. And I still see her. I remember this day, she saw me, she's like, thumb subject, we're good, right? And she basically left. But what she didn't realize was the most important part was when the ceremony was over and I'm standing outside when everyone's taking pictures with family and whatnot. I'm there by myself with this big trophy that was twice as tall as I was, right? By myself. And... Thinking back, I hated graduation because of it. I didn't want to go to my high school graduation. I didn't want to go to my college graduation because like, it was like this kind of like fear and kind of PTSD issue of like, will my mom show us? Will anyone show us? Kind of thing. But she loved the way she knew how, right? And it was never really a book for her to like read and be like, oh, this is how it should have been. And the funny thing, when COVID happened, she was forced to retire and she became like an auntie to some of my cousins. Right. My cousin is like, had kids, she would help pick him up. And then she one day it dawned to her when she was picking up one of my cousin's kids, like, shit, who picked him up when he was like a kid? The answer was nobody. I just walked home by myself every single day. Right. And she had no idea like how I got to point A to point B. And in the car, I remember she turned to me, she was like, son, right? Have I wronged you at all? And that for me was a mind blowing situation because having like a parent my mom, who was a refugee, jumped on a boat and risked her life to say, admit that she was wrong, was kind of, whoa. But I told her, I was like, no one taught you how to do this. So like, you're the best you could. Are we close? No. <laughs> like, do I love you? Absolutely. But we're not going to handle a relationship the way think you would like overnight. And it's something that I'm working on today, which I'm sure like a lot of people I talk to kind of like with immigrant you know, parents kind of try to do as well. Yeah. So in high school, where did you find your academic role models or where did you find your role models to move you toward kind of more of this professional life? That's interesting. So I think that my saving grace was a program called Mock Trial, which was a national competition where you take on a case and you compete against other high schools. And that was kind of an introduction to kind of law a little bit. But the thing is, manual arts, that they're asking pretty much like every year because we're in a city school. We're like competing against high school, like Harvard, Westlake, people that are like top ranked community. And I remember our high school was sponsored that year by one of the top law firms in the world. It was Scanarts, right? Scanarts is sent there, turning these old pro bono work, basically, by coaching these high school students, right? And one year, believe it or not, we actually passed the first round, which was like insane. I guess I think the defending champions of like last year was like, no one knew was, this is not going to happen kind of thing, right? But we won. And then people were just so like 
taken back by. I think LA Times did a whole article on us. It was a big deal. It was front page. I still remember it was next to, I think, the Iraqi inspectors at that time. And you see like these kids from inner city high school beat this like crazy prestigious high school. And I still remember we walked in with Manila folders, those cheapest Manila folders we think about. And the other team was obviously pretty much all white, right? They had like leather bound briefcases where like the initials on it. It was pretty much David Goliath. And there's no way around it, right? But we won. We won, man. And like, it was a trip. It was like a validation, so to speak, that we worked hard. I think it helped motivate a lot of folks there. Definitely me and my team at the time kind of like move forward. But with that said, only a handful of us, I think, graduated high school and moved on to a university. So anyway, the long answer to that is I was fortunate to have, you know, some lawyers from this prestigious law firm who came and kind of like coached us through and kind of showed us the way. And I still remember they took us to practice. The, the law firm, the office, actual office in downtown LA. It was like the 65th floor. And we're fucking like, we're high school kids, right? And like, nobody does this school. And they walked into a building. I didn't have the audacity to walk into a building like that as a kid, right? It was like 65th floor. They taught this huge coffee room, all glass windows, beautiful at night, like lit up sky, right? Downtown Skyview. And we were practicing whatnot. And my coach at the time brought me to his office. And I saw his name on the door. It was blah, 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 attorney alone. And I remember I saw, man, how cool be one day I'd see my name on the door like that. So when I graduated law school and got hired by Reed Smith, you know, his top international law firm, like pretty much thought I swindled my way into that. But I remember the first night I came, I saw my name on the door. It was Tuan Van Yuang. Attorney at law, right? I was 40 something floor, beautiful sky view, kind of thing. I remember like legit cried. Like I cried only a handful of times in my life. I was like, wow, I made it. Wow, that's amazing. Wow. It was trippy, but yeah, that was quite something. So basically, by high school, you already had envisioned what your future was going to be like. Did you know for sure that that was the path you took, or was it, and then that's just what you pursued, or was it kind of like it took a while to get there? It was convenient, right? Because that was what was presented to me, first and foremost, right? And that was one of the professions that, who be kidding? As Asian kids, one of the approved professions that mom and dad would like really fucking love, right? Doctor, lawyer, pick one. And just happened that lawyer was kind of like the calling that, that came to me and, and I was good at it. And it kind of kind of fit my just persona, right? Loud and kind of easygoing. I can get along with people. I can fake it, maneuver accordingly. Pretty much just what like still my job to this day. I just like maneuver people <laughs> kind of thing. So yeah, it just kind of like fell my lap, so to speak. But in hindsight, would that be something I would have done if I think I had like, I think more traditional parents would kind of like, Hey, how would you explore your interests? How about you look at X, Y, and Z instead? How about pigeonhole to like the two options that give it to Asians, Dr. Lawyer? I probably wouldn't be a lawyer, to be honest with you. Because, you know, man, I have told you Will before. Like, I like to exercise my artistic side, which I really think it was dormant because of all the life expectations that you do. But I like making cocktails. I like artsy stuff. But I mean, it worked out. And I'm not complaining. Like, I do pretty well and I live a good life. But would that be... My number one choice had things worked out tonight? Probably not. Yeah, I'm going to get into that a little bit later because like, I know you have a lot of questions about now that you've quote unquote made it, right? And now you actually accomplished your goal. Now you have the next level questions of life where you're 
Like what is happiness and what is actually who you really are? I'm going to ask you about that later on. First, I want to get to in terms of the path of actually setting your sights on this almost impossible goal as a high school kid, seeing your name on the door in that prestigious law firm to actually achieving it, right? It couldn't have been as fast and easy as you made it sound, right? Especially for somebody from your background, not really understanding the ropes, because I'm sure a lot of lawyers probably come from law families or probably at least understand how to play the game, right? So can you just tell us a little bit about what that path is like going from high school, from your background, all the way to the incredibly prestigious law firm that you ended up getting to after law school. What is that path like? And did you have to do things differently in order to get there versus other people? Right, right. I'm glad you asked that because this is a topic that I don't shy away from. I am a byproduct of affirmative action. There's no question about that. I did horribly in my SATs. I didn't even study for it. While people were studying, I didn't know you had to study for it. But that was kind of part of the problem, right? We didn't have the resources at all, right? To like really understand what was needed in the competition, right? That was out there. So truthfully, without affirmative action, I probably would not have gone to the schools that I got into. And I got into like pretty much anywhere. I think I got into all the UCs because at that time, the UCs came in and took the top basic 1% all the high school, right? So it doesn't matter which high school you went to. You were top 1%, you got in, right? Not to mention, they also gave scholarships and all that, which I clearly would not have been able to afford without. Okay. But getting in is one thing, right? <laughs> Actually doing well and succeeding is two different things. And I pay my dues. A lot of times people don't realize that I do a lot of outreach to high school and colleges as well. There's a really high attrition rate for minorities and folks with socioeconomically challenging backgrounds once they get into these elite schools. And there's a huge debate whether you're actually doing these students any favors by allowing them to be in elite schools, but ultimately they're not prepared, right? Because what happens is that these students who are not ready to compete at that level, then tend to major in certain studies that we're not preparing. For example, there's only so many Asian American studies like majors that can get jobs doing what they're doing, right? Well, they normally would have to study economics, you know, pre-med or whatnot. But pre-med for like an elite school, you're talking about everybody that is like well-equipped, who got the proper foundation, proper education, or pre-law, whatever you want to call it, right? That's a difficult task, right, to really overcome. And I got my butt kicked the first year of college. And I lucked at because I think I have people that cared and I worked really hard, right? And I think I had the foundation there. But a lot of my friends didn't. And they left. They went to like Cal State or whatever lower tier schools, you know, ranking wise, so they can compete, right? But me, it was honestly just kind of sheer willpower because I was kind of like, man, I cannot look at my mom and be like, she jump on a boat and get here. So I studied really hard after like that first year. I did not do well my first year of college at all. I think I was pretty much C average, barely making it, right? And I didn't really work hard after my first year. I think I was training at that, but like it took a while to really train at that. And that was just like just pure hard work. And I think that's part of college. And there was a real high attrition rate, I think, for students who are not ready to compete in that space. And I certainly was one of them. But luckily, I think I encountered folks that were willing to help me really catch up. And honestly, put in the hard work to catch up to the folks that were way ahead of me. And in some sense, I feel like I always will be behind the starting line, whatever it is, whether that be college, law school, or the legal profession. Right. But 
recognizing that reality, I think, forces me to work harder, right? Whatever that is needed or whatever need takes. So I think that's what this difference really is because getting in is one thing, doing well is another thing. Yeah. And on that note, what are some mental coping mechanisms or habits that you do, right? Like when you feel behind, because I think a lot of people, at least that listen, have felt behind before, right? And it's a very tough place to be. So how do you kind of deal with it? What do you tell yourself? How do you seek help and kind of get through it each time? Right. I think that's an excellent question, Andrew, because yeah, you're right. We all feel it. Whether you're on the top of that totem pole or the bottom, we all have our low moments. And it's recognizing that you're going to have good days and bad days and really, really, really bad days. Right. And the difference is the people is going to get up the next day and knowing when to kind of just walk back from that situation and not make rash decisions. Like I missed been plenty of days. I got beaten down. You know what? Today's not my day. I'm going to go do yoga. I'm going to go do something else. Surround my friends with people, Will, who is going to like give me the energy and like the encouragement to face the next day, right? Surround yourself with people that positive people is going to be extremely important. And I'm been very lucky in my life to have amazing people around me to hold me up when I need it. For those folks that you're finding help through, was it a mix of your friends and different professors? And how did you kind of approach them, tell them about what was going on and get the help? I think it's mainly friends that I rely on, friends that I've had throughout my life. And I've been very lucky to have those folks. And in terms of like professional networks that I have made along the way too, it's interesting because you put yourself out there, there will be people who want to see you succeed. Be genuine, authentic with your intentions of where you're going and actually really, truly putting yourself out there, the good, the bad, in between. It was very surprising to see when people will show up for you. I always thought that, like, I got to put my only my best face forward, like, no vulnerabilities, no weakness, none of that, right? Because that's what people want. That's just not true at all, right? Because that comes out arrogant. It comes out like, oh, then you don't need any of this help, right? It's the times when I think I've been struggling the most, when I'm, like, need the most help and, like, willing to accept it and admit it to people is when I got the most attention and assistance from Folks that I didn't even expect to like show up, right? So I think society tends to tell you that you have to kind of pretend and not show that you're vulnerable, which is really not true. And let me get it wrong. I get it. There's some situations where it's not always appropriate to be like, be vulnerable or cry in front of people. I'm not suggesting you do that. Admit when you need help or admit when you don't know something actually can go a long way. The way I look at you, I think I've never really met somebody like you in the fact that the way I look at you is like, you're a literal gladiator. Because like the profession you chose, it's a very, very competitive profession, right? Just getting into UCLA from your high school was already almost like incredibly impossible. But getting from UCLA to UC San Francisco law firm, you had to basically beat out everybody else. In order to get into Reed Smith, which is one of the top global corporate law firms, you have to beat everyone else. Not only that, is your job is to basically go against toe-to-toe other corporations and then basically fight for your corporation, right? And you have to win in order to get promoted and beat other people in order to continually get promoted and do well at your job, right? It's insane to me how intense it is your entire life, honestly. I really want to know about how you got from law school to your first job, because I think that's always been something that I've struggled with, at least out of college, is like not really understanding from like the academic world and translating that into the work world. And how do you basically 
find the roles and basically beat out your peers in terms of getting that role. So what did you do to get that first job? It's kind of ironic because as I got into college and law school, it was this whole like prestige game, right? You kind of have to have a certain background, you're having experiences. But when I was looking for my first job, those things matter too, like where you went to school and like how well you did and whatnot. But the folks that I was able to encounter really liked my background, right? And that was the ironic part. I didn't think that was something that I really wanted to share or something I was really proud of. But they love to hear that. Oh man, your mom is a refugee from Vietnam, single mom, raised you and navigate through all this and do that. That kind of tenacity. And I think what they feel recognized. And when I interview people now, what I look for is the people that got knocked down and can get back up because I think they recognize that on me because the legal profession, like you recognize, well, it's not an easy one. It's litigious for a reason. It's a zero-sum game. There is no such thing as everyone wins. It's like one side wins and then one side loses. There's really no compromise there, right? So everyone in the industry knows that like you can't win at all, right? You're going to have moments where it's going to suck. But the people in, the understanding is you have to bet on the horse that finishes the race, right? And more times than not, my experience has been hiring folks who have not any adversity in their lives, right? They're not going to finish that race. And for me, and I'm sure folks want to hire me, they're looking for someone that's going to stick it through when it's like not sexy, when it's like really hard, right? And I think that was, I think the difference that allowed me to get that first job because they recognized that, you know, the rigor that like I had. And it was the same rigor, I think, that kept me in the industry for so long and done so well because I practiced pretty much scared my first five, six years, right? Because I thought, again, I was behind that starting line. So I did the extra legwork. When people skip things, I didn't skip anything. Like I double checked, I triple checked to make sure that I was right. And honestly, it wasn't fun until you're good at it, right? So after five, six years, that's when I really kind of got into my rhythm where I'm at now, which is like, I'm very comfortable with like my practice, with what I'm doing, but it took hard work, really this mentality that like you have to get up, right? Because you will get knocked out in this industry. And I think that's true for like any profession because everyone wants to like succeed. Everyone wants to like win, right? But you can't always do that. The hard part of, I would say, doing things, something like corporate law, isn't just knowing what to do, right? But it's also speaking the language and it's understanding like the people and the type of people that you're interacting with are probably people that you didn't grow up with, right? And so there's probably a lot of people that have kind of grew up in that culture. It's like first language to them. So it's very, very comfortable with it, right? Whereas for you, probably you're being introduced for the first time. So not only do you have to do your job, but you're also trying to learn the second language, right? Can you talk a little bit about that and what that was process is like for you? Right. So that's why I meant by I felt like I was always behind the starting line, right? And the question is, whatever that industry was, for me, it's about really paying attention to like what was going on, right? It's kind of like being able to read kind of in between the lines, what is not being said. And the truth matters, like there wasn't many people that looked at me when I was in big law where I was at. There were some, but like they were also struggling. They were also trying to like figure it those things out, right? 
But I was very cognizant of that, though. I was very cognizant that, like, this is not my playing field, that I am very much playing catch up, right? That I'm behind the starting line and I need to do what I need to do to, like, talk the talk and just walk the walk as well, right? I keep saying working hard, but the truth of the matter is that's just such a small part of it. It's like being light, right? And it's kind of hard to teach someone to, like, how to, like, be likable, right? It really comes down to honestly being super fucking dependable, right? It's like showing up when it's like not fun to show up, things that people don't want to do and like be there for that happy hour. Be there for the event where, yes, yeah, all white people and there's no one looks like you or whatever it is. It's super uncomfortable. You've never been there before. You're part of not wearing the right thing, right? But just showing up and trying to figure that out and see, oh, I botched that this time. But guess what? The next time I'm showing up, I'm going to look the part. I know what to do. But no one's really going to like show you. You just kind of have to experience it. I think a lot of times I see this with like, you know, with colleagues as well. It's kind of like they don't want to show up to certain events because they're scared. And rightfully so. I'm not knocking anybody, right? Because I was there. I felt the same thing. Like I don't never been to an art gala or like a silent auction of any of this kind, right? This is cursing that like every club, right? Just had to suck it up and go because you have to recognize that truthfully, I think everyone's just trying to figure it out. But some people just look really good at pretending like they know what they're doing. Maybe have a great hair like you will. Like it helps distract people from like, what's going on. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's, it's incredible. Yeah, I mean, because I remember me going to working at my first corporation and how stressful it was going to every single event because I grew up around Asian people and I didn't know how to make the jokes or I didn't really know how to contribute to the conversation. And there are people that it was really easy for them to do it because that's just the way they were. And so I was always constantly feeling this like anxiety all the time. And just imagining myself in your shoes, because your work is very public, right? Because your work, basically, everyone knows whether you win or lose. And so having to basically like be in the public arena all the time and basically, I just can't imagine what that anxiety was like for the first five or six years of your career, or even before that in college, or I mean, basically, you've been fighting for your life for such a long time, right? Right. Right. But again, it's kind of a situation where you just have to go for it. And this is going back to like my upbringing, right? I always think to myself, I'm never really fit in a particular category, right? Asian of the Asian people, I wasn't brown enough, but I wasn't black enough, the black people. Certainly was not white enough with the white, right? I'm just kind of salt line, I was kind of like been stuck in. And ironically, when you think you're most comfortable was when I was taught probably one of my most humbling lessons. And it was when I was representing my pro bono action against the U.S. government for wrongfully detaining Vietnamese folks. And I think I told you about this story, but I was asked to do an interview in, in Vietnamese. And I was pretty confident about my Vietnamese, right? Like I grew up watching those like 50 Chinese movies that translated to Vietnamese with my grandfather. So when I got to Vietnam before and I speak Vietnamese fairly well, and they asked me to do this 10-minute like, you know, live interview in Vietnamese tell them what's going on like Trump doing I'm like oh man this is my time to shine come on you want to be, get, be really proud of your son go ahead and jump on that boat to get us here and so that Saigon TV came to cover this part which is like the biggest newscast for Vietnamese so ever watched Saigon TV in your Vietnamese right and the camp hits me and I think the first word she wanted me to say was detention and I just realized I don't know how to say the word detention 
in Vietnamese because like legal terms in any language, right? That's not your primary language. It's going to be hard. So I describe what detention is, which is like, oh, they'll make you go anywhere because you're stuck in this room. Pretty much that was what I was trying to describe to you, right? I told you sounded like three-year-old kid trying to like explain this, right? And I remember calling my mom the next day. I'm like, mom, did you watch like on TV last night? She's like, absolutely. Yeah, I did. I'm like, well, you see me? She's like, yeah, I did. I'm like, what do you think? And she was like, son, you look great on TV. But you beat me to shit. <laughs> and that was national TV. <laughs> that wasn't white people's fault. That wasn't like black people's fault, bro. That was just the unique circumstance that like, I was put in. Right? And it's ironic because you placed essentially home because that's the Vietnamese community. That's who you are. But at the same time, I still felt like a stranger. And I think that's kind of the interesting dynamic of being whatever ethnicity you are growing up in America, right? Like, I'm Vietnamese-American. I'm not American-American. I'm not Vietnamese-Vietnamese, right? So in some sense, I'm always going to be, like, I think a lot of people in this kind of weird whole line, right? And that's just bizarre when you actually think about it. It's kind of like you don't have necessarily a home, so to speak, unless you count the home is the folks who are in the same boat as you are, so to speak, who has really no home. Because then, like, it's kind of like the economy themselves, right? That's interesting for me. Yeah, you're giving me some strong PTSD for both the work moments of not fitting in, but also the figuring out new cultures. And that really resonates with me of, like, being in the middle and kind of having to put on a different armor suit face for the different groups. So just like you were talking about double and triple checking, right? Like, I guess, like, the important parts of your work. Is there anything you can check culturally? Or like mindset that you flip before doing things now so that you're like, well, probably going to botch it. But here's like what I'll do to be as smooth as possible going in. Or is it just you're just comfortable now, right? And you just know that, okay, yep, there's going to be this discomfort. There's going to be a part that I don't get. And I just keep going. That's just part of it. How do you kind of carry yourself into those new places now? I'm glad you said that because that's a nicer way of saying what I was going to say is I just don't care anymore. I just don't really give a shit what people say anymore, right? It was different when it was like 10 years ago, I just started out and it was like very green and very scared. The difference is now it's like, oh, I know I can kick ass. I've been kicking ass this whole time. So this notion that I have to be, I have to fit into a category or not, it's just it doesn't resonate with me anymore. In some sense, I was able to kind of like surpass. And I'm telling you, it feels so liberating to not have to fit into an Asian mode or a white mode or whatever. I'm just Juan, this litigator. This is what I do. You know who I am. You hire me because you want to win, right? But that is, in some sense, a prestigious position to be in, right? I got there. So now I can feel that way. You can say those things. But folks are still getting there. I understand that struggle. Like, you're trying to figure out. But I guess what the message I would say is, that's part of it, right? That's part of putting that armor on. You basically Mandalorian stuff, upgrading your armor every time you have a case, every obstacle that's thrown at you, right? The difference is, are you going to get up or not, right? Are you going to let that beat you down and like crusade yourself? And then days I did, days when I was like, oh shit, maybe I'm mad that I made a Lord as I thought I was, kind of thing. But you have to quickly get over that. And I think the difference between folks that quote unquote makes it or made it are the ones that kind of like have almost like that, I don't give a shit anymore kind of mentality, right? Like, I'm just going to do what I got to do and like kind of pave your own path. 
And honestly, that's the most liberating part of like the journey for me so far is being able to kind of detach myself, right, from all of it. Worst case scenario for me, I start my own front. Like I start my own practice. I start my own business or whatever it is. But I'm finally in phase in my life where I'm profitable enough to stay that. It's not lost on me that a lot of people are not in phase in their life. But what I'm saying is you stick to it. Like just by pure time, you're going to learn from your mistakes. And you're going to win some of those battles. And then eventually you just get to that point. So can I explain to you what I think you do? And then you can correct me to let me know sure. if this is what, exactly what you do. So the reason why what you said is so powerful is because what you hold so much confidence in your ability is such a hard thing to do for anybody, not just an Asian person, right? Basically, what you're doing is you are taking on the role of like a corporation who has millions of dollars in line and basically going and fighting on behalf of that corporation and winning money, right? Is that kind of what you do? Right. So I'm in the business problem. So clients, big or small, come to me when they have problems, okay? And my job is to fix their problem, right? A lot of times, at the company cases, right? So it's like, you lose, there goes your wiggle belly up, right? Like one of my biggest cases, it was like actually hundreds of cases. It was over like, I think a billion dollars worth like liability, right? So if we lose, that's a big number, right? So yes, they do come to me and be like, how are we going to win this? Because we need to win this, right? Which is a lot of pressure, no question about it. But I think part of it, again, is kind of like the experience you build over the years, right? The first time that happened to me, I was yeah, shitless. I'm like, holy crap. I never seen numbers that big ever in my life. So this notion that like I'm working on a case that's that big, you think everything you do, like, it's going to, like, ruin the case, right? Like, oh, my God, I got the address wrong, kind of thing. Or, like, how's that going to impact everything, right? But soon you recognize that, like, everything doesn't matter. So long as you kind of push forward and do what you know you're good at, usually the outcome should be in your favor. But, yeah. And as a litigation lawyer, um, not everyone is a litigation lawyer, meaning that in order to be a litigation lawyer, you have to actually go into the gladiator arena, right? And basically argue your case and win in the arena, right? And basically in order to be that gladiator, you have to kind of be the top tier or the MBA of lawyers in order to actually stand in that arena, right? Oh, well, I think the transactional lawyers would disagree with you. (laughs) (laughs) The way I describe it to people is like, there are different types of lawyers, right? There are folks who put deals together and then there's folks you call when the deal goes bad. So if you were talking to a transactional lawyer, they would tell you, there wouldn't be any of that unless I put that deal together in the first place. What are you talking about? Right. And the litigator was like, yeah, you put that deal together. That sucked. Guess what? Now your clients got sued. Now you called me to go put out this fire for you. Right. So I think it's a different skill set that you have. But your traditional notion of what an attorney is, where again, you go into that gladiator stadium and like wielding your sword and which is your tongue here, your mouth and the words you use. Right. That's a litigator. That's a trial attorney. Yeah. That's what I do. And I find that a lot more interesting. But I would never take away from my transaction folks who some of the most brilliant deals I've seen put together are like, they function a different way, right? But like, if you think the traditional way, it would be your litigators who go out and like, argue from the judge, right? Convincing a jury of like your peers on why your side should win versus the other side. And that takes a lot of rhetoric. That takes a lot of persuasive power and skill set. And that comes down to honestly just a lack of billing, right? I know plenty of like brilliant, brilliant litigators, attorneys who are amazing on paper. Like the stuff they write, I could never write like the way they do. 
some reason when they show up in front of people, it comes out garbage. Like they can't, like you only read a paper so much before people just like yawn and lose interest. But I come in with just like this big old smile on my face and I'm like quirky and weird and loud and kind of squeaky, right? They'll like wake up because the jury is like, fuck, how do I get like caught in this jury pool? But this guy, at least he's entertaining, right? He's smiling. He's kind of handsome. Like, he kind of <laughs> looks like me. I think he's telling the truth. Yeah, I'm going to give his client the benefit of whatever you know, he's claiming it to be. But it could stop to that. <laughs> the truth is. Yeah. I have a strategic question because for all the legal litigations, cases that I've seen only in movies and documentaries, they're usually looking for an angle to make their argument. And so, you know, hearing you talk about your, how impressed you are with transactional lawyers making the deals and also then you having to clean up fires for poorly written contracts. Like when you enter your litigations, are there plain English things that you could tell us that you look for? I always tell people to keep it simple, stupid, right? A lot of times you see these really hated contracts using crazy legal ease, which is really antiquated, right? It's just someone got a sample somewhere, right? And decided like, oh, I think that's how it's supposed to read, right? But I can tell you when we go to trial, you have your trial, your peers. It's just normal people who honestly are not that educated. Some of them might not even have graduated high school. And there was kind of like almost emotional, right? So unless you have something very clear, it's like Andrew is entitled to a million dollars, okay? Upon completion of these three things, right? What are these three things? Lay it out. Don't make it more complicated than that. So as a trial lawyer, I love clean contract because then coming to in front of people and be like, hey, it's not that hard. The other side are trying to make it very complicated, but this is it. If Andrew did this, X, he gets Y, right? That's what it says, right? That's it, right? But people try to make it more complicated because like, I don't know, they just think that's how it's supposed to be. But the best contracts I've seen, very short, none of that, like 50 pages, none of that is clean. Like keep it simple. Think of it this way. If you had to present this document to someone who is not a lawyer, would they understand what you are entitled to, right? Because that's the standard when you go into a trial because that's who'll be reading it. It's like, oh, some normal people who like don't really know contract law, but they're going to read this, going to understand. Yeah, Andrew's entitled to a million dollars. That's what it comes down to. So that was super helpful, but I want to try and apply it just because Will and I are startup guys and we've both seen these ridiculous contracts that you're talking about. So is it just bullshit? And we should just be like, nah, rewrite this as if we were going to present it and then we could get it down to two pages because every contract I've seen is pretty ridiculous. Absolutely. I would tell you that right now because I actually represent a lot of startup folks too, right? So like, and I'm a litigator, right? If this goes sideways and I have to go to court, how is this document going to look, right? So I clean it up. I'm like, let's make this very streamlined. So I've done a lot of partnership agreements, a lot of startups where like, oh, you're coming in, you're bringing a partner in, you have no money for this person, but if the company takes off, this is what they're going to get, right? So if the company hits this revenue this year, I'm going to get that, that, right? But a lot of the contracts they bring in, there's all these contingencies and like these words that like, how does that make sense? And like this provision messes up that other provision. Like how does that like that really interact? right? And that's the type of legal ease that drives everybody nuts, right? The longer for me, the longer the contract, that means you're trying to hide something, right? You're trying to hide something in the details. Like, I missed it. And you know, I don't know how provision G affects provision 
you know, heat, right? And you're hoping that by the time I get to T, I forgot what G said, right? That's what it really comes down to. But if you were entering your contract, you should probably have a separate agreement from whatever the operating agreement they have. Just you understand what you are entitled to, right? And then you have a provision at the end that this document supersedes all other documents. So that's why I always write. So if you, Andrew, or you, Will, came to me, but like, this company wants to hire me. They want to give me this stuff, right? The contract I'm drafting you, I don't even need to look at the other draft contract because they're going to have like 10, 15 different contracts, blah, 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 saying that this is tied to X, Y, and Z, right? We don't play with that game, right? Lay out what you're entitled to. And the last provision in that contract is going to say, this agreement supersedes all other agreements that have been entered to by a prior party. So what you just effectively did was, I don't give a shit what you guys agreed to before, right? This agreement is now with us and this is what's there. Does that make sense? So that's how you guys, whenever I talk to my star folks, like, and you're going to a company or whatever it is, that's a topic we make you want. Provision that supersedes everything else. That right. is really helpful, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice lens to look at all those contracts that we look at, right? <laughs> yeah. And that's really when they're going to be used anyways. Like, no one looks at it if everything's going smoothly. So the place it's really going to be used is if there's an issue and there's going to be an argument, which is then most likely, like, one of the best ways you can look at the contract because that's the actual likely use case. So hundred percent really helpful. Yeah. yeah. Tuan, not only is your work very impressive to me, but another thing that is like stands out to me because I've never seen anyone else do it like this is dating. So now that you have, you're in a monogamous relationship, you're in love and it's a beautiful relationship, but I want to go back to before that. I'm an Asian man. I'm 5'7". I'm not particularly tall. I don't get any matches with white women on any dating apps, right? But I've seen you successfully date white women like on these dating apps, and it just blows me away. Can you tell me about what it is like dating a white person as an Asian American man? And just like what that process is like, just tell us a little bit more about that. Kind of the Ali Wong concept of like colonizing the colonizer sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. (laughs) It's interesting because like, I didn't even think about that until like, honestly, I talked to you, Will. Like you were talking about like, oh man, I didn't realize this was kind of a big thing. Because remember, I didn't grow up around Asian people. I didn't have this notion of like, oh, there's this dynamic where like, it's kind of like a premium if you're an Asian guy that didn't get like score with a white girl or something like that, right? I always thought that as an Asian dude with like my unique background, I have a much more interesting story to tell than like a lot of like these white people who came pretty much a basic story that I hear over and over again. I go up in town, blah, 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 like I might be like Christian or whatever, broke down that, came to LA, pursue like acting or like yoga or whatever that is, right? That story I heard over and over again. I'm like rolling my eyes at this point, right? So I guess part of it is like I didn't come in with kind of like that mindset that I'm in a handicapped spot, right? And I only say that not to kind of ding guys who feel that way, but there's this mentality and this is a friend of mine who's so interesting. She's like this beautiful Asian girl. And I think she once told me that she liked to date Asian guys but not using us from America because she thinks, right, that there is this kind of chip in their shoulder or mind or whatever it is that kind of limits their ability to kind of just be themselves and be the awesome person they are, right? Versus Asian men internationally who don't really give a shit about what happens in America or what white people do. They know they talk shit, period. And she's like, those guys, that's big, thick energy. That's a big, thick energy I want, right? And what I realized, maybe what I had in common with them was I was never kind of like, got trapped in that I'm Asian American, right? I was an Asian dude in a black school. I was an Asian dude in a Latino school. I was never an Asian dude in like a white world where I'm like emasculated, right? Kind of thing. 
as I start dating, I start seeing shows and whatnot. Where, oh, I see that that's like a fake, right? But I just really never allowed that to happen to me because I'm not really a typical Asian dude kind of thing in that way. I say what I want to say. Well, I don't care kind of thing, right? And I think that genuineness and authenticity comes out. And it's not just like white women. I mean, like people, people gravitate towards that. I just happened to date white women because I live in Silver Lake. And that's kind of like my five mile radius that I set on inch. That's pretty much it. <laughs> no, you're right in that. One of the things that opened my eyes was going from New Hampshire to California, right? First, going from New Hampshire, basically Asians perceived it in a certain way. You're the minority culture. And then going to California, at least the high school that I went to, Asians have a lot more confidence because they're more of a majority culture. They're proud of being Asian. And I had to basically almost step into that and like learn how to basically be that. And then you go to Asia and they just run shit, right? And they never even experienced what it was like to be a minority because they're just the majority. And so then another confidence, especially because as an Asian American with a Western education, most people that have Western education in Asia, they're generally pretty wealthy. And so they have a different type of confidence that you walk into that as an Asian American, you just don't have. And I do agree with you that we all look the same. There's like a mental block, I think, that we have that yeah, you're right. That could be potentially turned off if we just allow it to be turned off. That it seems like you've been able to turn off at a really young age. Right. Yeah. And again, it's kind of ironic because it goes back to the whole, I don't fit in nicely with that Asian kind of like community. I don't fit in any community per se. I'm just Twan, who's this guy who has kind of like this weird thing where he hops around different places with different people and just seems to be fine. And it's kind of part of needing to be kind of like nimble, flexible. But in some sense, I think that's kind of the best thing that I've been able to kind of develop because I can truly kind of see beyond just like someone's skin or where they come from. I really do to see who you are. Are you a cool person that has nothing to do with how much money you made or like fashion you hold? Like, are you a real genuine person? Are you fun like, to hang out with you? And that's pretty much it. It's been a blessing and a curse of that depending on like the situation I've been in, but I can't do it any other way. <laughs> like, it has been a rise. He's carved out a way to be his own majority. I'm like really yeah. into it. Yeah, it's pretty yeah. amazing. A nation of one. <laughs> a nation of one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go back to like, because earlier you mentioned about you wouldn't have chosen the career that you chosen if you knew more, given a different circumstance, right? And let's talk a little bit about that because I think as like a second generation Asian American, most of our parents are coming from very unstable situations, right? And so right. the best thing we want for us is to basically go into something that's more stable. And that's like happiness is like finding something that is stable and not only stable, but also gives you a bit of prestige, right? And so that's why lawyers, engineers, doctors, because they can never take away your degree from you, right? Right. So your mom, obviously, knowing what she knew, gave you literally like probably the best possibilities, chance, a really good life, right? And you were able to grab onto that and you made it happen. But now that we've kind of like looked at what that life is like, you have more second order problems, right? In terms of understanding what is the point of life or what is happiness? Those problems that probably a lot of our parents will never have ability to even think about, right? And so can you talk a little bit about getting to that next level and what you're experiencing right now? All right. <laughs> it's funny asset because I feel like one of the themes of like our conversation today is just irony of everything, right? So ironically for me, my sense of happiness is going against everything my mom has told me to do, right? Which is like, make the big bucks, right? Continue to make money, make money, make money. Basically pursuing that, right? I'm actually very much the opposite now. I'm 
don't want to do the rat race anymore. I didn't stay at those big law firms, became like a big fancy park because I never wanted that lifestyle, right? I always tell folks, how many houses do you need? Like how many cars, how many pairs of pants or like shirts do you need? Like I don't really need that much. For me, what I value most now, above all else, it's time I can spend with the people I want to spend with to do things I want to do. And that in some sense is contradictory to like what our parents is expecting us to be doing, which is hustling constantly. But yeah, my mom worked every day for like over 30 years. She opened her store and worked every single day. Like there was no break in her mind. And I had done everything I had popped the can to like not be her in that sense, right? Because at the end of the day, it's just a number in a bank account, right? And when you die, you can't take it with you, man. We all heard that concept notion, but like for some reason, you can't break away. And in no sense of the word, financially independent. But I'm not also not like living paycheck to paycheck. I worked hard to have a nice saving where I can take breaks. But it's really, I think, finding true balance, right? Finding a profession, a job or a gig, whatever you want to call it, where you can truly not be consumed by it. Right. And it's easier said than done. I kind of got through the host. I did the big, big law, the biggest you can possibly think of when the mid-sized, small. Now I'm kind of like this firm where it's like an in-between. They're based in New Orleans. I'm kind of like a satellite office of one person, right, who's holding down LA for them, so to speak. So they give me a lot of flexibility, a lot of independence. And something I earned over the years because I worked with them before when it was like these big law firms. Uh, so they know who I, I am, which is why they hired me and left out to have that opportunity. But at the same time, I sought that out, right? I could have taken a job. Now, this is a new job I just took on, but like I had another offer that was going to pay me double of what I'm making now. But there's no such thing as a free lunch. I knew that what that entailed, what that would have demanded on my life. And at this juncture in my life, I'm not willing to do it. I don't want to do it, right? But you have to decide that for yourself, though. It's kind of, what do you want? Do you really want a Ferrari? I drive an Audi that I bought my first big purchase when I had that big fancy lofter. But I bought an Audi, I guess I was, but I really wanted that 2012 6 And I've been driving that same car for the last 12 years. I'm super happy with it. I don't need another car, right? But some people want like the newest iPhone or the newest Audi, the newest whatever it is. I'm just not that person. For me, it's a time that I spend with folks that mean much more to me. You want to show up for your son's Victorian graduation? <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, I'll be there taking pictures with my kid. That's for sure. Yeah. My grandma come this time too. She can't just <laughs> stay for this one. She can't just leave like she did for her son. Your relationship with your mom changed? Or like you guys talk about how you hang out now? Or has she stayed the person she is? I'm not saying that's any sort of bad thing or change needs to happen. You know, but just how has it shifted at all as you've kind of been growing and, and doing all you have? Right. Well, what I want to say to like conclude this interview is like a happy ending story where I'm like, yeah, my mom broken through all these barriers and now we're like BSFs and all that. But <laughs> it's absolutely not. You can't change 35 years of a certain routine, right? Like my conversation with my mom is the same pretty much every single time. Did you eat today? What did you eat? <laughs> that kind of thing, right? We all uh, yeah. that, right? 100%. So. 100%. So that's 99% of like out of conversation. Every now and then you have that 1% where for some reason you have an extra question of I'm being facetious, but like you get an extra bonus of whatever <laughs> that conversation may be. But it doesn't change how much I love my mom or like how much I appreciate all the things she's done and the 
fierce recognition that there is no me without her in every sense of those words, right? I wouldn't be here in this earth. I wouldn't be here in the U.S. I wouldn't have the opportunity to sit and talk to you gentlemen, right? That all came from like my mom's side, right? But like what you expect to have an American kind of like relationship where we're best friends, vacation together, like have drinks together and all that. Like, no, that's probably never going to happen, right? But this undermines the type of love I think I have which is a, a unique one that's our relationship, you know? It's quite unique because it's really you and your mom because you, you didn't have your dad, you didn't have right. any siblings, and you guys were kind of like on an island in South Central LA together, basically fighting for survival, right? So it's basically you and your mom your entire life. Right, right. And that kept me on track too because like, we needed each other, she needed me, right? Because like there were so many times where I didn't join the game. Clearly, I had two very viable options through the brown or black one. Like, it was an open <laughs> invitation for me, right? But I chose neither of those. I chose to be a good kid because I knew the sacrifice my mom made to get me here, right? So in some sense, because we were isolated and I knew how much she sacrificed, how much work she'd done, and I kept me kind of like on track in what was a pretty rough path to like where I got. Yeah. Andrew, anything else? Nothing else. Is there anything else that we didn't cover that you wanted to talk about? I don't know, man. You guys tell me it all. Thanks for uh, spending the time chatting me about this stuff. I feel like it's free therapy. No, okay. So yeah, <laughs> Tuan, I really appreciate, very, very grateful for telling your story. I feel like I learned a lot about you that I don't think I've ever heard. And so I really thank you for sharing that. Really enjoyed it. And thank you for your time. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for listening until the end. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It'll help more people like you find us. You can find more about us on wild.show, WLD.SHOW. Please subscribe to our newsletter or DM us on Twitter. We'd love to get to know you. 